1: To create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nathan Carlin about his new book. Pastoral Aesthetics, A Theological Perspective on Principless Bioethics. Nate Carlin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Yeah, great. Nate, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm from western Pennsylvania, north of uh, Pittsburgh. I went to uh, college at Westminster College in that area, studied European history and uh, Always wanted to become a minister. That was my goal in going to college. So after that I went to uh Princeton Seminary and uh there I studied with um Donald Caps and Robert Dykstra. And uh Capps, uh became my um, most significant um mentor and um in life, kind of shaping my thinking and uh writing um to this day, I think uh you know, I've had a number of mentors at you know each of the institutions that I've uh, studied at, and but Cap's was definitely the the most significant one. And then after seminary, I went moved to Houston to go to Rice uh, University and studied psychology of religion um, there. And uh, when I came down to Rice, I became the uh, research assistant for um, Tom Cole, who taught um, across the street at uh, McGovern Medical School. He was and is the uh, director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics. And uh, after I finished up my graduate training at Rice, um, Tom was able to hire me at the McGovern Center. And so, um, so I've been here ever since. It was never my goal to teach at a um, medical school, but I, th- I think when you're um, in the humanities, um, you uh, have to be flexible. And you have to walk through open doors. And uh, you also have to be lucky, I think. And um, so a lot of those things sort of happen for me. And um, so the way I explain to people what I do is I essentially teach um, what could be considered sort of pastoral care to um, medical students. But, you know, we really just call it medical humanities But um, I I think that's a way of sort of making sense of my own kind of educational and intellectual uh, journey.
2: Well, because you make a great point in your work, which is that the the history of pastoral care, you know, or religion and medicine, um, that goes back further than than what we think of now as the medical humanities. And in some ways, those traditions are... um, and in some ways, the two movements are related, which we'll get to that in a minute. Um, first, tell me, how did you come to write pastoral aesthetics?
0: Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, I, I would say that the book, um, in a way, is a kind of stitching together or coming to terms with that identity. This, this most of my training, sort of dealing with history and religion and psychology, in some way, all through college. Seminary and graduate school, but then finding myself in a medical context, um, so so it was sort of like, well, what does that sort of mean for me? Like, how, how do I complete this transition to the um, medical context? And you know, when I, you know, I'm you know very grateful, like I said, and you know, very lucky and fortunate to have gotten this job. Um, but I, I would say that it, it was it was very hard in the beginning, you know. Um, Landing in a, a medical context that was very uh, sort of not familiar to me. I, I would say that you know in a medical context, there's 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 much more of a um, hierarchy that that uh, professors uh, feel that you don't feel as much. I don't think at sort of call it regular colleges or universities the culture is, is, you know, much more rigid, you know, we're expected to, you know, come into the office every day, nine to five. And, you know, that's just not the life of a regular kind of uh, professor. And there was also sort of new expectations for me to sort of write in medical humanities and to write in bioethics, whereas all my previous training was essentially in pastoral theology or psychology of religion. And that's where my real interest was. And so for a long time, I would say I sort of resisted bioethics kind of because I was sort of expected to do it, you know.
2: Uh
0: Uh, And um, uh, but in time, like, I guess, you know, so I I just finished up my, you know, 11th year and uh, at the medical school. And I would say over time, I I sort of I, I came to sort of accept my role And so in this book, it was going to be, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it in a different way. And I'm going to do it my way. You know, I'm going to try to make this somehow my own and somehow interesting. And um, I guess that's sort of what I want most from the book. I'd like people to read it and think, you know, this is interesting. I never would have thought about things quite like this before, you know. Um, it
2: really is an original perspective and creative perspective, I think, on bioethics. Um, I'm. Can you tell us a little bit about how pastoral theology and bioethics are connected?
0: Sure. Yeah. You know, for I, I would say most people listening to this, you know, probably don't know what pastoral theology is. Probably most people have some sense of what bioethics is because you know bioethics is in the news. You know, every week at least. You know, if not daily. And uh, for you know some reason or another. But pastoral theology would basically be the theory behind pastoral care or the theory behind, or the theology behind chaplaincy and you know things um, like that. And I would say that comparing the history of bioethics to the history of pastoral theology, I would say that you know pastoral theology, in a modern sense is maybe you know 10, 20, Years older than bioethics has slightly different roots. Um, so if bioethics really gets going in the you know late sixties, seventies, eighties, pastoral theology would get going probably in the fifties, maybe. And um, the founding um, figure or an influential figure in that regard would be Anton Boisen who's credited with the the founding of the, uh, CPE movement or clinical pastoral education, um, movement, which is, um, how chaplains are trained. And he had this sort of very basic idea of, of the living, what he called the living human document. And his point was that in seminary, if you, if seminary students are spending all this time studying the Bible as a text or, Um, doctrines as as texts. He says, well, what about people? Can't we study people as though they were texts? Can't we study people as rigorously as we do these sort of other things? And so he called that the living human document. And that's just a phrase that he lifted from William James, actually. It's uh, in the Varieties of Religious Experience. It's right on... That's
2: one of my favorite books.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I, I mean, it's everybody. It's impossible not to love James, everybody. Um, you know he loves James he's just such a generous and thoughtful and creative thinker, and so Boyson is just you know taking this phrase from James a living human document and applying it to uh, theological education and also, in that time, I would say you know, in the fifties and so forth, um is kind of really taking off in the United States, especially psychoanalysis and and um other forms of psychology as well. Carl Rogers is huge, not psychoanalytic in any sense whatsoever. But Carl Rogers is huge in terms of the development of pastoral care and, and pastoral um, uh, theology. And and then writing culturally at this time, you have people like Philip Reeve or Christopher Lash or Robert Bella, all writing about the shift in American culture becoming what Reeve calls a therapeutic culture or what Lash calls a culture of narcissism. But um, all of these sort of this main, this huge American shift toward the inner life, and I don't know, and around you know the fifties and sixties, and continues to this day, and is only amplified by means of social media, um, where we sort of look inward and we write our lives and tell about ourselves and things like that. So I think pastoral theology um, is in part of that. It's in tension with it. But it definitely benefited from it in terms of um, making pastoral theology sort of have a a significant place at the table in theological schools and and sort of education. And so bioethics would get started, you know, just a little bit after that. You can tell the history of bioethics in a number of ways, but, um, you know, it's, I think it is compelling to think about it in terms of crisis, the Tuskegee syphilis study and and the creation of new medical technologies and with dialysis and so forth. And so we create new problems that, um, we, we didn't know how to deal with sort of before, which relates to another sort of larger movement and just philosophy in general, where in the early 20th century, if the main ways of doing philosophy are either going to be continental, where you're thinking about power relations and, um, Phenomenology and and so forth, or sort of the American kind of um, thinking about um, uh, the meaning of words. What what does what what does it mean to say um, ev- the word evidence? Or what does it, what what are all these different concepts in context? You know. So if American philosophy is rigorous in a kind of very different way that almost becomes a form of logic, I would say both schools of thought, continental or um, American, um, didn't pay that much attention to sort of applied philosophy or ethics. And so um, this movement towards applied ways of thinking, you know, kind of begins in the 70s and is uh, continued to this day And the most important essay. in Bioethics is going to be Stephen Toulmin, How Ethics Saved, or How Medicine Saved the, the Life of Ethics. And uh, so that's, that's a good single place to go kind of read about this movement in general and um, the move towards the practical. So I would say that that's a long way of saying, I guess, pastoral theology and bioethics are both practical and that there was a movement and sort of I don't know. I guess around nineteen the nineteen seventies, that uh, they would be connected at that level.
2: Um, okay. So, well, can you tell us what um what are what the bioethical principles are that you write about, um, and then what are some of the common criticisms of principlist bioethics?
0: Sure. Yeah. So the the, the principles that I'm uh, sort of writing about are coming from. The sort of most cited book in bioethics by Tom Beecham and Jim Childress called Principles of Biomedical Ethics. And um, they have uh, four principles there, respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And those four principles are an elaboration of three principles coming from the Belmont Report, um, which the principles there were respect for persons instead of respect for autonomy, beneficence and justice and so that was a short government document published in the 70s that was commissioned after the Tuskegee syphilis study where about 400 African poor African- American um, men were uh, experimented on for 40 years, 1932 to 1972 and um, we, the United States Public Health Service was sort of observing but not treating, syphilis in these men, even after penicillin was available and could have cured them. And um, so the the study wasn't hidden, but it wasn't widely known about either until 1972, when uh, a journalist sort of brought it to the attention of the American public. So there was just all kinds of outrage. So the government commission sort of said, "Okay, scientists and doctors need oversight. Before we just trusted them to be ethical on their own, we can't really do that anymore." And so the Belmont Report is what came out of that. Now, Tom Beecham was an intern at NIH uh, at the time, and then he was given the job of, you know, after this retreat, (laughs) as the way he tells the story, is saying, "Okay, now we got to define what these principles mean." You know. (laughs) And uh, mm-hmm. so the, so the intern had to do it, you know, that, that's how uh-huh. he, he, okay. so he, he, this is how he tells the story, you know, but, um, and I, I believe it actually. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, cause I see how sort of organizations work. And, uh, um, so then he, you know, I guess he kept running with it. You, I guess we could ask him, but he kept running with it and then sort of wrote this book and this book is in, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine editions now. And it's just so, Unbelievably influential. So those are the, the principles. I, I take from um, these four principles from Beecham and Childress that have roots in the Belmont Report. But um, there are other people who have offered other principles. Dentistry, for example, takes these four principles from Beecham and Childress. They add a fifth: uh, veracity. And uh, I think Robert Veach has another set of principles. I think he has seven principles. So when we, I just went. Um, that's just a long way of saying. Principalism, you know, it doesn't have to be these four principles, but these four principles are the dominant ones. So those are the ones that sort of um I those
2: are the ones on on the step exam, right? Those yeah. are the ones that we, we test the medical students on. These yeah. four principles. That's right. It would be these four in a clinical context, these
0: four principles are dominant. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And um so yeah, so that's the four principles. I, was there something else that you wanted me to say? Yeah, yeah. No, them?
2: what, what um, criticisms? What oh, are but, some comments? On, so, what are some? Because your book engages um, yeah. the critics of principless bioethics, but it it does it in I think kind of a an interesting way.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah. So I, I think to to talk about the the criticisms of this method, one I think it would be just important to acknowledge that I think a lot of the criticisms come out of envy <laughs> that, mm-hmm. um, these, these guys, Beecham and Childress have been so successful. I think everybody envies them is resentful for their, their, success and so forth. Um, but that said, I think that there really are genuine sort of weaknesses as well. One would be that if you look at these four principles, you say, well, is this really a coherent system? You know, like, uh, these and, I, and it doesn't—it doesn't really seem so. They offer a method of weighing and balancing and specifying and so forth. But if you're a sort of a liberal person and you come to take these sort of principles, you can get, you know, come to certain conclusions. If you're a conservative person or a libertarian or something like that, you can come to very different kind of conclusions um, with their sort of method. So I think that is a weakness, and I think that would be. Um, in contrast with a, a much more coherent system, would be the sort of the ethics of Peter Singer, a utilitarian. You know, you may hate Singer and his conclusions, but it's a, from a systemic point of view, it's a remarkably sort of beautiful and coherent system, you know. Um, so I would say that that is sort of one kind of um, criticism. It's just, it's really not, it's not a coherent system, principalism. And to I think the, the more standard, and the, the, this is where I would sort of come in, and from medical humanities sort of point of view or literature and medicine point of view and an anthropological point of view, the criticism of principalism tends to be that all these kind of short cases are sort of disembodied, they're not connected to lived experience, and uh, there's no serious... Um, Consideration given to social context, so experience and context would be the the, the main kind of medical humanities or narrative um, kind of critiques, and I think that's right. You know, and and say, well, you say, well, how how what does that mean? Can you give me an example? Mm-hmm. So, I was at ASBH, uh, American Society for Bioethics and uh, Humanities, uh, you know, this past. Uh, Fall. And I went to the session on uh, surgical ethics. It was really interesting. And uh, there was um, a heart surgeon given a presentation, you know, just a very short case, you know, three, four sentences. And it's basically a a drug user. I can't remember if it was heroin or cocaine. I I don't know if there's a difference. Maybe it's the same. Um, A drug user, when you do these uh, sort of hard drugs, you can, uh, I guess, fairly off in a fairly routinely blow a heart valve. And so when you do that, you have to have it replaced or you die. So um, this has been a, a classic sort of dilemma in um, surgical ethics, which would be how many times do you give somebody a new um, heart valve? And that's that was the discussion. So it, the old, you know, back, I guess, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, the answer would be, yeah, you always give it to him the first time. And then the debate is about, do you give it to him a second time? But now in, you know, fall of 2019, he was pushing it further saying um, the debate now is, do you give it to him a third time? And he was talking about a real case, but um, he said the reason why it's sort of a, a legitimate clinical ethical issue now. Is because of uh, advances and technique that make the third doing it a third time much more um, effective and safer and so forth. You know, so that's that's where the debate is at now in surgical ethics, kind of on this issue. And so, you know, that that's fine. I think in general to, to sort of come to these kinds of um, to have these discussions. But just this week, I was reading um, a memoir called Intern by uh, Sandy uh, Jahar, where he's writing about this exact issue and a patient that he had in a New York um, Hospital, where um, the surgical team was refusing to do it a second time. You know, that's the, sort of the, mm-hmm. old, the old wisdom. Mm-hmm. And mainly on these grounds, but also because the patient was HIV positive, And the surgeon says, you know, this this drug user is going to put me at risk, going to put my family at risk. Um, He's probably just going to go back to using drugs sort of again. It's for no benefit. And then, but um, Jahar, you know, was talking with um, uh, the the patient um, who, you know, in depth, who really did want to stop using drugs. And so he was Um, just really torn up kind of by all of this. So I think that with that narrative kind of critique or that contextual kind of critique sort of gets into is all of these emotional elements of the conversation that take a lot of time and a lot of depth and a lot of space. And I think that in general, principalist bioethics just doesn't do that and it, but it could, you know, so it's not an mm-hmm. inherent, it's not an inherent flaw of principleless bioethics. It just doesn't do it. And I think that's reflective in the ASBH sort of, um, ethics, um, kind of presentation. So that my book is an attempt to then sort of kind of go deeper than that, to, to think about conversations and emotions, both of patient and the, the caregivers and, and so forth, you know? So in that sense, um, I'm kind of critiquing the, as you said, I'm critiquing the critics of principalism Mm -hmm. by saying that, you know, this really, this could be done in a better way. And we don't have to just dismiss principalism on these grounds, even though they do tend to fail in this regard.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: So let's let's talk a little bit about how um you you bring this kind of richness to two principless bioethics. Um, you use this method, and it's Paul Tillich, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is his method of correlation? Can you tell us what what is that method, and and how did you come up with it?
0: Yeah, Paul Tillich is um, he is. I don't know how you would rank them, but definitely in the top 10 or top five, something like that, important theologians of the uh, 20th century. And he he was very important uh, to me personally, because in college, um, you know, I think I had a genuine faith crisis because of my education, being exposed to historical method, biblical criticism and, and so forth. I was more or less raised as a fundamentalist and college sort of tore all of that down. And, um, and that faith crisis sort of continued into, um, seminary until a, a friend of mine there, uh, told me that, uh, told me about, uh, Paul Tillich and he said, you really need to read this book called Dynamics of Faith. And, uh, you know, so I picked it up and, um, the basic argument that Tillich is making in the first two chapters of that book is that doubt is a part of faith. And sort of once uh, and believing in God does not require um, or um, being religious does not require a sacrifice of the intellect. And so once I had that permission to doubt and permission to sort of not sacrifice my um, intellect, I I think that is what freed me from the faith crisis. Mm -hmm. And then that just got me interested in Tillich in general, his basic method of correlation. And that would be the main project of his whole work which is, by correlation, he means correlating theology and culture. So um, what does that mean? So Tillich says, theology must speak to contemporary experience. If it doesn't, then theology is sort of um, kind of worthless. So an, an example of a theological idea that doesn't make sense to us today would be when people in the Middle Ages were debating how many angels could Fit or dance on the the head of a needle, you know? It doesn't mean anything to us now. So that's an example of (laughs) theology (laughs) not being relevant. But Tillich says kind of the same thing about core doctrines, like the idea of God, even, or the idea of sin. So, what what can sin mean to a modern kind of um, intellectual um, person? And Tillich's answer would be that that sin is not really so much about drinking, smoking, gambling, you know, things like that. That um, sin is really about the sense of estrangement and despair we feel in life, and so he's picking up directly on existentialist philosophy, psychoanalysis, and so Tillich was very friendly to all of these. Anything that can help us understand the human condition um, is valuable, and those things must be sort of included in, in theology. So um, God, Tillich argues, is um, what he calls the ground of being. And in that sense, God can give us, God is the ground of being, can give us the courage to be, to the courage to sort of face our despair. So a lot of it, just like existentialist philosophy, um, can seem sort of, you know, I don't know, deep or convoluted mm-hmm. or, or abstract or, or some, you know, something like that. But a lot of his ideas can were made more practical in his sermons, and he has a sermon on sin called "You Are Accepted," that I think that um, kind of reflects this kind of rethinking of of what sin can mean to sort of a modern person. So, so. That's the, that's the method in, in, in general, is how to make theology relevant to, to us today. He calls that the method of correlation. He's very open to so-called secular disciplines, philosophy, psychology, and so forth. And so I thought, well, what if we took that grand method and, and, and took bioethics for culture and sort of these images of of pastoral care for theology. What if we put those things sort of in conversation? What would we get then? You know. So then I took these these the four these four core principles of bioethics, and then I took four images of pastoral care and just correlated them just to see what we would get, and to sort of um, uh, see if it could help us see bioethics in a um in a new way
2: how did you select the images of pastoral care because i I know you say in the epilogue really we could choose i mean we could choose any image almost to go with the principle
0: yeah yeah that's right yep yeah so um since this was the my first kind of sketching out of the the project as a whole um uh some of the images I, i i felt like um kind of had to be included so the first one i mentioned anton uh boys and the living human document mm-hmm. so that's going to be the kind of the founding image of the discipline so i thought well that one should be included and uh then the sort of dominant image of our time right now is an image called the living human web and that was um offered by uh, uh barney miller mclemore it, um, at Vanderbilt. So I thought, you know, to have the founding image and then the contemporary image. So that's two of the two out of the four. Then there was a third image called The diagnost- Diagnostician by uh, Paul Prizer. Um, I thought, well, that one just seems so medical related. That one kind of has to be mm-hmm. in, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I actually had a different uh image, um, when I proposed the book to Oxford called The Self Differentiated uh, Samaritan that, that, that's an image, um, by, uh, Jeannie Mosner. And, um, and that's kind of a, a feminist image and it draws on family systems theory and psychology. And I, I wanted to use that image, but then, um, I got critiqued in the peer review. They said, ah, it doesn't really make sense. And, and, um, so I thought, okay, well, I went back, looked at the images and then there was an image of uh, chaplaincy called the circus clown. And so I just swapped the circus clown in for um, the self-differentiated um, Sam- Samaritan. And, uh, and then I, I just put, um, put the images uh, in order and together. And I didn't really think it mattered too much which one went with which. And um, so I would say that um, the, the other thing that um, I did in terms of the method in each of the four substantive um, chapters whereas i wanted to pick um, since the critique of principle list bioethics is that there's not enough experience and context there i wanted to pick materials rich in experience and context sort of for the correlations to do their work in and so in um, the 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 first chapter on um, the living human document and and human web for instance I looked at a novel and then in the chapter after that, I looked at um, two uh, memoirs for experience. And then the chapter after that, it was a long um, pastoral um, care conversation, sort of kind of original material um, in that regard. And then in the last chapter for justice, um, I was sort of opening up the analysis in a, um, in a kind of a macro way. And so there I, I drew on um, journalism. So I thought that those were all, I wanted to have different kinds of um, human sort of experience and, and analyses of, of context in each of the, the chapters um, to do um, the correlations with. And then I'm glad you, you mentioned the point about the epilogue saying I, you can use any principle with any image and you could use different principles if you wanted to use Bob Veach's principles or something like that. Or if you wanted to use an existentialist, say myth of Sisyphus or a Hindu image or a Muslim Mm -hmm. name of God or something, that's all um, uh, totally fine. And uh, so for me, the important thing is the call to um, creativity, I think. And it's sort of not even my conclusions. I don't Mm -hmm. think matter all that much to me as much uh-huh. of the process, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, I know that's kind of a strange thing to say. And by, Bioreth- I know.
2: Can you, t- yeah. well, it, your interpretations though are, are really original. Um, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about how your own experiences, whether with, you know, clinical ethics, working in a medical school um, with training and pastoral care, um, how how do your own experiences inform your interpretations of of the images that you chose?
0: Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a good question. I you know I I really liked the um, even though I didn't even have it um, included in the, the the first proposal, I I ended up I, I really did like the the, the circus uh, clown, and um, you know I I went through uh, and the guy who offered it uh, Faber. Um, uh, you know, was a chaplain himself, and um, so it wasn't meant to sort of make fun of chaplains at all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it, it kind of comes across that way if you don't know the, the context of the image. But the idea of the, the chaplain as a circus clown is that in the context of the hospital, um, you have people doing high-powered technical things like heart surgery or nurses putting in, um, IV lines and uh, so forth, and that require great technical skill. And the chaplain, looking at all of that, may feel sort of like he or she doesn't have that much to offer. That they're sort of like a clown, where in the circus you have the people taming lions or doing mm-hmm. trapeze acts and so forth. So, uh, but um, Faber says in the circus, the clown is the one who sort of reminds everybody. That, you know, after all, we really are human. And um, as impressive as all these things are, um, they, they too are human. And it sort of brings everybody back down to earth. And the chaplain serves that kind of role as well. That, um, you know, yeah, medical professionals do save lives, but um, they are not God. And mm-hmm. um the chaplain sort of helps everybody, um, you know, come back to come back to earth as well. Where especially when, and, I, and I, for me, I think there, there were two practical implications of that of coming down to earth. Mm-hmm. One has to do with sort of our expectations of medicine. I think that we can make medicine into an idol. I think if you wanted to read about that in a a, a, um, a secular way, you know, Dan. Callahan's book, Taming the Beloved Beast is a good sort of book in bioethics on sort of how we have made medical technology and an idol. and um, and that really hurts us all. and I think that that can inflict so much suffering at the end of life if we if 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 medicine and life itself is an idol and we don't have life and death it's sort of in proper. Perspective. Um, I think things get worse for individuals and families, and healthcare professionals who are, are living through um, uh, prolonged kind of suffering. And I think the other sort of component of the clown—you know, the clown is funny. The clown, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to praise pranks and jokes and so forth. Yeah. And so there's a lot of humor in the hospital. Um, sometimes behind the backs of patients. Sometimes patients themselves are cracking jokes to health professionals. And you know, bioethics and the literature on professionalism, they address this, but they never really address it in a psychological way that's sort of satisfying to me. And I I kind of really like Freud has has this kind of short essay on humor where he's writing about humor Um, as a defense mechanism, but carried out by the superego. And we normally don't think of the superego as coming to the ego's defense. We normally think of the superego as cruel and harsh. It's our conscience. It's the one that tells us we're terrible. We're a failure. We need to be perfect. But sometimes life is so hard and the situation is so unbearable that the superego, like a caring parent, says, you know, it's really not that bad. This is just life after all. And we can laugh about it. Life is a joke, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that um, was, a, a, It's we normally don't think of Freud as being that gentle, and we don't think the of the, the superego as being that gentle. yeah and um, I just really like that. And I think it sort of helps us sort of understand all of the jokes, especially that patients make, that usually go sort of whenever pay, you know, time and time again, patients I hear either read about or hear patients making jokes to doctors. And then the, the health professional, or nurse or doctor usually just don't react in any way whatsoever because they don't know what to make of it, you know, because they f- probably feel like they're in a double bind. If I laugh at the joke, then um, am I laughing at the patient? If I So I'm just going to kind of not sort of acknowledge that it ever happened. But I think it's sort of an expression of a patient's deep anxiety and um you know, I think some kind of gentle affirmation of that anxiety and the joke is kind of definitely sort of appropriate. And I think that um, that's also often, not always, often what is going on with um, kind of dark humor um, of uh, doctors and nurses as well, that uh, the suffering that they're sort of being exposed to day in and day out Um is, uh, the, the, the common way they, they put it is like, if I, if I didn't laugh about it, I would, I would cry or I would crack up or I, I wouldn't be able to do this job if I didn't laugh about it, you know? And so I think, um, that, that image of the circus clown and Freud and psychology and so forth, um, sort of turns our attention to humor as a serious moral consideration. And ways that I think are richer than the language of, professionalism normally gives us. Um,
2: so that I, I think that is I I I love that. And, yeah. and 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 you know, I just um I it kind of answers my next question too, mm-hmm. which was to talk about sort of practical application. I see so I see so much potential for this method of correlation in teaching where we could use texts other than clinical cases to illustrate the principles. Um, but I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how, how the book could be applied to really the everyday work of clinical ethicists or of chaplains. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think for um, clinical eth- ethicists, I think it would be um, really a, a call for them to um, read pastoral theology and to um, become engaged with it. Um, I I think that it's probably not on the radar in any kind of significant way, but I would say that there's a whole dominant or dominant's not the right word, but a whole sophisticated tradition that they could draw on to sort of enrich their own thinking and writing and practice of um, clinical ethics. Now for chaplains, um, I, in a way, I think that the the book is especially written for chaplains because um, I think in the context of the hospital, I, th- I think ultimately that s- sort of feeling of insecurity is, is sort of right, that um, uh, chaplains feel as though it's not a level playing field. They're not being sort of invited into the conversations in a, in a, in a full um way and I think that they may be a little bit sort of intimidated as well so what this book sort of does it sort of brings the tradition that they're very familiar with and it says it is legitimate and you can contribute you know so this is really a you know a call for creativity and a call for chaplains to sort of kind of um, draw on um, their tradition and their expertise to sort of um, uh, work and kind of in bioethics. And then even sort of more broadly than that, I think kind of my message is that um, whatever your intellectual background is, it's sort of, it can, it can contribute in some way. I think that that is this, the spirit of freedom, a spirit of creativity and a spirit of um, kind of inclusiveness um, is kind of what I'm getting at. and. and I think that I don't expect my method, to, and I, I don't even wouldn't even sort of really want it to be like the, the main way of kind of doing bioethics or something like that. Because I, I think clinical ethics um, is great, and mm-hmm. we and we need it. And um, what I, I'm just trying to offer something a little different that can help us see some other issues um, that I think are significant. Um, but maybe sort of, you know, kind of not, there, you know, there are questions that we have to answer about um, gene editing and so forth that, um, uh, you know, need to be answered in, a, in, you know, maybe more standard ways. But I think thinking about things like, like, like we were talking about humor, um, I think these things are sort of important too, um, especially in the day-to-day life of the hospital.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you're. I, I, if I remember the blurb about the book, I think it says something like um, that. This approach enriches principlist bioethics, and that's it. Really does it. Rather than being a, a crit- you know a harsh critique, it 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 really um, just adds some some layers of complexity, you know, and and beauty even, you know, in some cases. To, to some of these discussions about these principles. I just anyway, I think it's great. Um, we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, can you tell us what, what are we, what are you working on now? What's next?
0: Yeah, thank you yeah. Um, right now I am um, working on uh, two uh, very related uh, projects, both on the theme of doctor writers or physician authors and uh, both of them are uh, edited books. Um, one, is sort of about doctor writers, so it's about people like um, Atul Gawande and okay. Danielle Ofri and and you know people like that. And so I have um, bioethics and medical humanities people sort of writing about these um, doctor writers in a um, uh, scholarly but accessible way. And then the other book that I'm working on, edited book, is also about doctor writers. But it is, um, cons- it's not about Dr. Writers, it's by Dr. Writers in the sense that um, I sent a call for proposal out to um, all of our graduates. We have about 200 graduates from our medical humanities program now. And, and I, I sent a call for proposals out and, um, and said, well, um, would you be interested in, in writing about your life um, uh, as a, a, um, a physician? Um, and so my hope is to cultivate these uh, young people into becoming sort of the next generation um, of uh, physician authors. So it's, it's birth projects are very are meaningful um, to me in, in different ways. And um, uh, so, that, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm working on these days.
2: <laughs> well, those, those both sound like great projects. Um, Nate, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
0: It It's my pleasure, Claire. Thank you for having me.